Welcome to More to Come, PW uh, Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. So, well, uh, welcome listeners. Um, uh, well, the, uh, welcome to our African American History Month special. And uh, this time uh, I have the great pleasure uh, to talk with Joel Christian. Gill, uh, he's a chair of foundations at the New Hampshire uh, Institute of Art, but for our purposes today, he is the author of Strange Fruit, Uncelebrated Narratives from Black History, Volume 2. Joel, thank you so much for being on More to Come. I am so excited to be here. You don't even understand. <laughs> okay, well we're gonna we'll we'll let, we'll let you we'll let you vent some of that excitement. Uh, and I I want to start off by making it clear this is our African History Month um, special, but you do African History Month twelve months a year. I mean, this twenty eight yeah twenty eight days are not enough exactly. I think that I spend a lot of time telling people that you know Black history is is American history and. You know, we need to spend more time thinking about it as such so that we have an understanding that black people have contributed so much to this to this country. And, you know, one of the things that I think is the most interesting is that because I wear my immigration on my skin, I'm not I'm not as American enough when, you know, you can come over here, you know, in, in the 1920s and your family loses an accent. And now you eat hamburgers and wave an American flag and you're supposed to be more American than me when my family's been here since Jamestown doesn't make any sense. So it's that understanding that we are you know, just as American and maybe even more American because we truly embody e pluribus unum in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and even more timely comments uh, uh, now as uh, we see really this, the, the, the classic understanding, the, the classic inspirational understanding uh, of, of how this country welcomes immigrants uh, being sort of being attacked. Uh, and that's a nice way to put it. So uh, uh, your words are right on point. Um, uh, but let's talk about your book, uh, because one of the great things, uh, about Strange Fruit, and I, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how you use, why you use that particular title, um, is, is that, I mean, these are stories, I mean, some of the, some of the narratives you do, I, you know, I was familiar with, um, um, but many of them I were, I was not. And, uh, but you have a way of really bringing them to the fore, making them entertaining and using comics in the best faction to draw people into these stories. And I, I bet send them off wanting more. So, uh, tell us a little bit about how you arrived at the concept of uh, strange fruit. Well, you know, it all started with me trying to tell my own stories and failing, um, and um, failing pretty dramatically, um, you know, sitting in my studio thinking I'm brilliant because nobody's discovered me. And, <laughs> and then someone else sees that. The artist. You know, somebody disease, else sees, yeah. <laughs> yeah, somebody else sees the work and they're just like, yeah, man, this ain't what you thought it was. And um, so, <laughs> so I go back to the idea of trying to find um, story, you know, trying to, trying to learn more about comics and cartoonings because I got my MFA in painting. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to get myself a library degree in comics, which is like going to the library and bugging the librarians on every book I can to try to understand about this. And I discovered Box Brown. And when I was Googling Box Brown to get more information about him, I heard about the story of Henry Box Brown. And so I sent him a message. I'm like, I know you're a white kid in Philadelphia. So why do you have the name of this, this slave? And he was like, 
Well, my friends call me Box and I'm Square. So that's why I chose the name. But I think I might do a story about that guy someday. And I said, well, I'm going to steal your idea. And be right up front. Yeah. And so I did. So that's, that's real interesting. Though, but go on. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So um, I did. And then, you know, I corresponded and showed him the work and he thought it was great. And um, yeah, so it was like, and then I went and started selling mini comics at, you know, Mocha and SPX and a number of other places. And as I, as I would go there, people would tell me more stories. Mm. And so it really is Strange Fruit, volume one and two, for the most part, are stories that people told me, like, have you heard of? Where I would go to a place I'd be speaking or I'd be signing books or something else after Strange Fruit, um, when I was, when I was selling comics and people would say, have you heard of this person? Have you heard of that person? Literally people started emailing me randomly. Like, have Uh you heard of this person? And so I made a list of all those people. I have a backlog of about 200 names right now of people who I want to do stories about. And so, you know, it just became like, I started doing more and more stories in the, what, you know, and I wanted, you know, I, I tell people that I wanted my own Acme novelty library, (laughs) Um, you know, so I wanted to give it a name. Referring to Chris Ware's famous series, but go on. Yeah, I'm a huge Chris Ware fan. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted my own version of that. And I had done a series of paintings in grad school called Strange Fruit. And the most successful one was a book, was one called Strange Fruit Harvested, which is a portrait of me with a noose around my neck, but the the rope was cut. And it was called Strange Fruit Harvested, He Cut the Rope. Mm -hmm. And it it was like a metaphor of how far we had come. Mm-hmm. but how far we still had to go because that rope was still there. And so when I was looking at, you know, the stories of these people and I was thinking these are like strange stories within the, you know, the like fruit that had fallen off the tree of history and just had been, you know, somewhere ignored and you go over and you find it. And it's like, man, this is, this is like, this shouldn't be right. This shouldn't be so good. That's over mm-hmm. here all around over here. And so I, I named the story strange fruit. Um, so sort of like connect to those series of paintings that I did and um, which was really great. And then volume one, Skip Gates was, you know, like we didn't when I asked him to write the forward, it was like, would you read the book and write the forward? And he's such a generous guy. He was like, absolutely. Send me wow. the book. You know, and um, he, did he you read just send it. it to him. How, did you know him? How did you? No, I didn't a, know him. That's what a question you know, I want to ask. Yeah. So I live in I live in New Hampshire and I spent a lot of time in Boston and Cambridge. And so I tried to send him an email through his Harvard address. And I got the, you know, the bounce back, like, thank you for sending me an email. I try to answer all the emails and we couldn't get anything. And then finally I just went on Facebook and I'm like, you know, I I have a big circle. So let's just see if anybody knows it. And so I sent a message and turns out that I went to high school in Franklin County, Virginia with his niece. And And then um, one of the, one of the figure models at our school had a friend who was a producer at PBS who knew him. Uh, and so they gave me his number and his, his, his actual email address. And I sent him an email address. I sent him the email, which was the same one I sent to his Harvard address. And he responded like immediately, like wow. within, like I, I sent him a message and then my publisher was in the process of sending him another message. And we were like, we'll see what happens. And before um, Sam Skinta, who was the, who was the president of Fulcrum, before he could actually finish the email, Skip had already responded. It was like, that would be great. I'd love to, here's my wow. agent's number, get in touch with him. And when he wrote the forward, he wrote it. He wrote a defense of the argument of the name for Strange Fruit, yes, I read it. <laughs> which was really, yeah, which was really interesting because we didn't even ask him. You know, uh, we, we were just like, he read the book, and he was like, "This is what this is," and I was just like, "Yes," you know, <laughs> one of those moments where you read it, and I was just like, "That is so amazing that he he picked up on what I was trying to do," um, and so. 
Yeah. And so it's been, um, you know, I, 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 I love the title and um, it's connecting to something that I had done before. And so it was all sort of in the same line of work that I was doing. So I felt like it was pretty connected. Yeah. And um, when I originally had it, um, there was some pushback um, a little bit about the name Strange Fruit. Mm-hmm. And then I got, I got into a flame war with this woman on Facebook and she said I was trying to steal Billie Holiday's name. And I'm like, I'm not stealing it. I'm telling you why I'm using it the way sure. that I'm using it. And um, by then I was angry. <laughs> so I sent, I remember sending, I remember sending Sam a text message. Cause I was like, I was like, well, just change the name. It's all right. And then I sent him a message and I was like, I'm keeping the name day. I'm keeping the name strange fruit. Now, if I can just figure out how to get Bill O'Reilly to sue me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, um, and now it's just, you know, it's strange fruit. I, I'm going to do at least one more, two more volumes probably. Uh, well, that that's great to hear. Now, now let's go from there. How did you get published? How did you get interest fulcrum in in publishing your book? Well, um, that's interesting because I'd sent it out to a number of different publishers. Um, I sent out like a couple, like probably about five, five or six of the stories in Strange Fruit, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't get any. I literally didn't get any response. And so I changed my tactic. Like, how do you get people to pay attention to you? And so I literally went to a bunch of publishers' websites at the time. And I'm not going to name any names because I don't want people to be upset. But um, (laughs) and I said, I looked at your comics about – I looked at all your comics, and you don't have any comics about black people. I draw comics about black people. This is literally what I wrote. Here's Mm. what I wrote. (laughs) I like it. And I sent a message. (laughs) And they literally responded at that. Like three or four publishers responded, but they all wanted me to finish a complete book before I submitted it again for their for their mm-hmm. consideration. And um, so I was like, all right, I'll finish the book and we'll consider it. So I was doing the stories and like collecting them and selling them as many comics. And I ran into Jason Rodriguez, who was the editor for Colonial Comics from Fulcrum. From, yeah, uh-huh, sure. yeah, and so he bought one of them at SPX and was like, this is so amazing. I'm going to tell my publisher about this tonight. I'm going to connect them because they should just publish your work. It should be great. And I was like, okay, like whatever, <laughs> just <laughs> ran through the SPX. And then I got a call from Fulcrum and they were like, yes, we love what you're thinking about. We love what you're doing. We love like the idea. This is great. We're going to, you know, we're going to run with this. And that, and that's like, it's like this really strange story where I was selling the comics anyway, because, you know, I'm a professor. So I teach on the side um, or, I, or I make comics on the side, whichever mm-hmm. one you want to put on the side. Okay. And um, yeah, so, and I'm like, you know, I'm like making these books and I'm going to do them anyway, because it's what I love to do. It's like my creative output. And then somebody comes along and they're just like, we want to do what you want. We want to do what you do already. And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Like, that's exactly right. Pay me for what I'm already doing. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it, you know, it's, that's timely. I mean, I think you came along. I think this is a case of being in the right place at the right time uh, with the right material. So, well, that that's really great to hear. Um, I did, do you have an agent? Uh, but you, you did do it all yourself. I did it all myself. No agent with the books, Um, which is, um, you know, and I, you know, I talk to my students about this a lot about, you know, whether to go with an agent or not to go with an agent. And I think it's like, I think you just, you you know, if you have good people and you get, if you get your name out there, people will call you to do other stuff anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that, you know, you can, it it helps to have an agent because, um, you know, like I worked with an agent for a little bit and um, they give you a lot of information about the publishing industry. Like I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Right. And so I think that that's, you know, that's part and parcel. But if you get a good lawyer, um, you're in the same place. I was um, talking. I have an agent for my um, speaking events and I was mm-hmm. talking to a friend of mine, John Jennings, 
um, about a year ago. Yeah. And John was like, I told him I was like looking for an agent because I was thinking about that process. And he was like, do you have any um, do you have any ideas on that? And I'm like, John, just wait. People will start calling you. You'll have too much work. You won't be you won't need somebody to do that. And sure enough, John is super hey, busy. So. Well, that's that's yeah, that's it. Well, for those who don't know, John Jennings is a, a terrific artist. Uh, he's um, uh, adapted uh, Octavia Butler's uh, Kindred. Uh, he works with uh, Stacey Robinson on uh, Black Kirby. Uh, and he's uh, one of the co-founders of like Black Comic Book Festivals on two coasts. So you're yeah. getting good advice from uh, a real visionary character there. Yeah, John is John is dope. I mean, I, yes, I can't. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's like, you know, like, you know, just like I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about John, but he's like he's probably one of the most thoughtful and like sharing people like he like he's not one of those people that thinks if you get something that he's not. You know what I mean? He's like, I'm going to share. I'm going to I'm going to try to bring everybody along. Like I just I just tweeted at him today that he was one of the talented 10th in, in reality. So without a doubt, um, I mean, he spends a lot of his time actually creating opportunities for other people to uh, yeah. to connect with readers. So uh but look yeah. let's jump right into uh, uh, uh I want to jump right into uh, uh to hear you talk a little bit about these stories. Uh so um um I mean one of the look one of the great things about strange fruit in many cases is I mean what it tells you about what black people uh have had to contend with and transcend uh I mean simply getting up every day and getting through the day uh can be a an act of heroism. Uh, when you start talking about uh, people in slavery times, uh, in Jim Crow times, and, and and you know maybe even today. So, but yeah. but but it, it, your books, while they talk, well, they talk about some pretty uh, desperate situations. Very often, they're also very tran- they're very transcendent. But there's also humor. And one of the one of the the wonderfully humorous stories uh, was uh, the the Jordan Anderson letters letter in this uh, in the latest volume. Maybe you can talk tell our listeners about that. Yeah, dealer. like, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, it's funny because, like, like the the ultimate clapback, like, the master sends you a letter, and you're like, you know, like this is one of those things that everybody wishes could happen. Somebody who did something wrong to you and <laughs> yes. treated you a certain way, and now they need you. Yes, and like, as opposed to responding and or just ignoring it or responding in like a nasty, evil way, it was just like this dry, like, indicative of what the slave humor was like you know, after 1865, when black people were just starting to exercise their agency over their over their intellectual property, and their intellectual rights in their lives. And so this guy sends back this letter, he dictates the letter. And he says, you know, um, master sent him a letter saying, come up here and hang out with me, come back to come back and work with me and I'll treat you better. And he's like, what do you mean you're gonna treat me better? I was a slave for you. Mm. You know, you treated us, you know, like you did, you treated us like we there was never any paydays for us. And I get paid $20. $25 a week now, you know, and, you know, there's good schools for my children and my kids. And I want you to tell me what kind of schools and my children are going to have and tell me and what kind of life. they call my wife Mrs. Anderson. And I love those. Yeah, guys. they call, yeah, they call my wife Mrs. Anderson instead of girl or gal. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, and, and then like he, like the thing that the, the key to that story is like, <laughs> yes. he says, you know, if you, he says, I'll tell you what, if you send me $11,680 minus a couple of doctor's visits and some clothes and food, food, I will consider that as good faith of your <laughs> intent and maybe, and maybe come back. Yeah. And this <laughs> no. is his back. He calculated his back wages 
for every right. day he worked uh, as a slave for this uh, for the for his slave master. So exactly, yeah. And uh, there are great images uh, that you've uh, rendered of him, sort of uh, in the background, smiling as his uh, letter is dictated. That's so. Uh, um, but um, the, the next story I want to ask you about, uh, and this reminds me of a story in, in the first volume of Bass Reeves, the Black Lawman. Um, yeah. Uh, but this is Willie Kinnard, the sheriff of Yankee Hill. Tell us about him. So she, Willie Kinnard, from most information that I can find about him, was a um, was an infantryman or, or an armory expert in the U- Union Army. And um, after the war, he sort of drifted um, and he came across um, the sign saying sheriff wanted. And it was about this town. So he shows up to the, to the town and he, he presents the signs like I hear you're, you know, like I, you're looking for a sheriff. Right. And they're like, well, you can read. And he's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah you, you posted these signs up and you said there's some outlaws. And, and they're like, yeah, sure. Let's get him out of the way. Give him the badge. Tell him to go across the street. The outlaws will take care of him and we won't have to worry about it. And so Willie Kennedy takes the badge, puts it on, goes across the street and the, the outlaws draw on him and he shoots the guns out of their hands. And then he like arrest him. And now he's the sheriff of this town. And there's another outlaw who's like um, who's spending all of his time like terrorizing this territory in Yankee and Colorado. And he has these um, bounties on his on his head I, for five hundred dollars story. Go on. <laughs> yeah. And so Willie Kenner changes the bounties to fifty dollars. And the man is so angry that he shows up in town to confront the sheriff because he's done that. And Willie Kenner is able to, to um, apprehend him as well. And then, then he disappears. Right. But mm-hmm. and I found some evidence and I didn't go into this because I'm, I'm going to do another story about this guy. Uh-huh. But there's a, evidence that he went to become one of the bounty the bodyguards of a former slave named um, Barney Ford, who was known as the Baron of Colorado. He was this escaped slave who became a millionaire. And there's some evidence that that Willie Kennard was actually one of his bodyguards. Oh, interesting. Well, one of the great yeah. things about this story I love is that, um, you know, just the, the last anecdote you said, you know, he changed the bounty from 500 to $50. Uh, and he said he, he said the robber was so vain, he knew that would make him come looking for the sheriff to, to figure out what, what was going on. So that yeah, was... That so was like- he was a he was a a master um, uh, at, at um, uh, psychological <laughs> lawfare. Yeah, and I way. think, and it's really interesting because you know most of the you know like the outlaw Josie Wells was written by like a Klansman or something, and so like most of those narratives were you know like you know Confederate fantasies like the 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 outlaw like the guy the drifter comes in and saves the town, yeah. but in reality like. Most of the people in the Old West were co- were people of color. They were a Native American, they were black, and then they were white. And so, like one, like a third of each, like one in every three cowboys was a black man. And so, I think most people have a tendency not to understand just how when you watch westerns and old west movies, like they are not representative. Like Oklahoma and the Panhandle. Mm-hmm. There were 150 black all black towns between 1865 and like 1910, 1920, 1910, um, right until up until a little bit after the end of Reconstruction. So most people don't realize just how like diverse the Old West was, and so wow. this is what it was like, you know, for a black man to wander into this town and just like basically clean it up. I want to I want to get a couple more uh, here. Talk about a couple more stories um, uh, before I have to wind this up. But uh, I particularly want to talk about uh, some of the women that you profile. Uh, for instance, stagecoach Mary Fields. 
Yes. Nevertheless, she persisted. She was, you know, a, you know, a giant woman at her time, had big hands. You know, they said that she smoked cigars and drank whiskey and was and they also called her Shotgun Mary as well. And um, she um, drifted a while after slavery and then spent some time with um, some some former family members. I mean, some former people of the family that owned her. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then she went off to um, Montana and she she entered a contest to win a star route for the U.S. Postal Service service and star routes at the time were like the most lucrative and dangerous routes for um, postal workers to run. And she was 60 at this time. And in order to do this, she had to hit six horses to a buggy and be the fastest person to do this. And she did it in record time, beating out men half her age. And then she did it for another 20 years. She did it until she was almost 80. And that's like that's a that's an amazing. I mean, that would be terrible to drive through right now, not let alone like a horse and buggy riding, you know, 50 miles one way or another delivering mail through like you know, wolves and bears and all kinds of other stuff. And Mary, what, what years um, are we talking was, about? What years? This was in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she was, this was before road. So she's like going back and forth over this road and just like, no matter what, she just did her thing. Like, you know, she wore pants under her, under her dress and she always carried a little pistol with her. She had a shotgun. She also had a dog. I mean, she was just like, she was literally like the, like, this is like, this is a character that I could build out and like use as a character in another book. You know what I mean? Like as a bigger character, like as a more pivotal character, because she could be a hero. How come we haven't seen movies about these people? I mean, well, you know why. I know why. Movies you know, this is a rhetorical question. <laughs> we know why. But, but, but these are these are stories, and your books are full of these stories. Um, we we uh, I, uh, I want to get to another woman in here. I want uh, I'd love you to talk about uh, uh, Kathy Williams. The, the yeah, Kathy Williams was the Union only soldier. known only known female Buffalo soldier. And we know that about her because she applied for benefits in the 1880s, 1890s. And she was denied benefits, but not, but for no reason. Like they didn't say she could, she could get the benefits. And she just, you know, was, didn't want to cook and clean. Like she wanted a different life and Mm -hmm. ran into a cousin who told her that, you know, you could be a soldier and all we do is walk around. And so she, you know, she cut her hair and pretended to be a boy. Um, and she joined the union army and she didn't, she didn't see much battle. Um, and she, um, was pretty, she, she, she got hurt pretty, um, pretty quickly within that tenure and, um, ended up, um, leaving pretty quickly. She only, she was only in the unit union army, I think for about a year and a half, maybe two years. Mm. And then she drifted for a while, but you know, like I can't, you know, I can't imagine, you know, I personally, I can't imagine being in a war. I can't imagine some, you know, small woman who's like, you know, you know, a small black woman deciding to go and fight in a war in a time when it was not, you know, in America that was inhospitable to her. Sure. So, you know, this is like these are these stories are just amazing in that, you know, they would be amazing if you just said a woman did it. But when you say a black woman did it, it's like that's another level to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know exactly what you mean. And and what you've done, though, is you put you've strung together so many stories just like this throughout these uh the two volumes of these books um uh, uh i also i want you to talk a little bit about um your day job <laughs> if i may call it that yeah. at the yeah at uh, what do you do i teach um this semester i teach all of the freshman studio level courses this mm-hmm. this semester i'm actually teaching a graphic novel writing class excellent which is interesting which is um i haven't taught graphic novels in a couple of years so like this is a lot of fun just teaching students how like to think about comics as a medium and like understanding that idea that you know when you talk about like writers writers do these classes like 
like um, that are like intensive reading or reading intensively. When you have to understand, like when you have, when you're questioning everything that you're reading and trying to figure out what the writer is trying to do, and you have to be taught to do that in some aspects. But with comics, you automatically know that that's going to happen, right? That's an mm-hmm. implied relationship between the reader and the artist. Like we, you're going to fill in the blanks between the gutters. Comics are this, you know, this understanding about semiotics and how we see signs and symbols and how those signs and symbols actually relate to us universally. And how we use those and we relate to them like we we specifically get we get those things. I do I do assignments where I have people draw a bunch of stuff and people always draw the same things when I have them draw things. And I'm like, that's why comics work. And because comics are a sneaky way of like teaching people things or giving them information, whether it's kids or people who don't like to read, like you can get people to read an entire book when they wouldn't necessarily have read one anyway. And they, and they forget that they've done that. So it's like a really sneaky way to do that because you're speaking to them on a level that they don't really understand is happening. Like they, they're, they're entering into a relationship with the artist and the author that they don't even realize they're having because they don't realize that they're doing a lot of the work. Like they're, they're, you know, they're initiating the sound, they're initiating the movement, they're initiating the action and the, like the suspense with those things. So I think, um, you know, that's comics are a really good way. And I, I'm really, it's like, it's really exciting to be teaching comics this semester. Like I haven't done it in a while. It's like, you know, it's, and it's a, it's a writing class. So it's not a studio class, which is usually what I teach. Uh-huh. And so getting into like the meat of how to get people to like, you know, like under, like think about it in a, in a very specific way and like how to give them that information and how to think about writing is pretty, it's pretty powerful. And then it's very inspiring because, you know, teaching, Anybody who's ever taught knows that you get just as much as you give when you teach. So it like solidifies my ideas and makes me think in other ways as well. Well, I, I love it. I, and I love the I, I love thinking about comics as a sneaky good thing. Um, look, um, uh, it, 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 to our listeners out there, uh, go out, check it out. Uh, Strange Fruit Volume 2 just understands um, Strange Fruit Volume 1, full of great stories we mentioned uh, the, the saga of Box Brown. Uh, he's got a great story about Harry Bucky Lou, uh, the original uh, baller of uh, one of the, the. I think the story starts out there were, you know, the NBA is 77% black now, but at one time there was only one black baller. Uh, we mentioned Bass Reeves. All of these are really inspirational, terrific stories about African Americans doing heroic things in, in some ways, in very ordinary ways, but really they. Very often, all of the odds are stacked against him. So, look, Joel, thank you so much for being on A More to Come. It's a pleasure to talk to you. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it, Calvin. Thank you so much. Hi, welcome to More to Come. Heidi McDonald, uh, PW's graphic novels review editor at Comic-Con. And I am in the D.C. crow's nest, finally. Got up here. Amazing view. I'm sitting here with uh, John Ridley, Oscar-winning screenwriter, uh, TV showrunner, American Crime, Gorillas, and the author of what am, the American Way, one of my favorite graphic novels. Um, I guess in the alternate superhero history uh, genre. Yeah, you know, it, it's its own universe. It's it's uh, it's its own thing, which is kind of interesting to be able to write in a space where you don't have to worry about treading on um, other history. Uh, canon, people saying, oh, but, you know, this didn't happen, or how does that fit in? There's a, there's a little bit of uh, freedom that's involved in creating your own world, and very special. How many times do you get to say that? That's true, that's true. I, I, I think, um, I mean, obviously The Watchmen is the best known in the genre, but there's a lot of other really, really good books to me. Um, I love Rick Veach's, uh Max Immortal. 
Yeah. Um, the Black Hammer is a very good one now. Yeah. And and I, I feel like the American way is definitely, as I said, it's really a very important message that you did in the first one, especially, obviously, as regards race and as regards uh, American history in the 60s. Um, and now you're back with a sequel, so uh, that's set in the 70s, and um, it's been 10 years, but it seems like the themes, obviously, the times right now, it's all about civil unrest. Um, why don't you tell us tell us what it's about, though? You know, it, it's very interesting that you say that the themes feel very sim uh, similar, and certainly that's not because we adjusted past history, but I think it really is a history lesson in the idea that um, dissatisfaction with the government, with um, people who feel as though they are marginalized, that their voices are not being heard. Um, unfortunately, rough encounters between the citizenry and law enforcement. You know, these things didn't happen overnight. And I think there are a lot of young people out there um, who feel as though, you know, is there hope for the future? Why are these things happening? Um, they've happened before. And the only way they change is with engagement. Um, that's not to say that how people feel, they shouldn't feel that way and be dismissed like, oh, hey, you know, your grandfather went through that. Um, but these things, they've happened in the past, they happen in the present. Um, it's up to us. And that's one of the themes of the American way. You know, we can't really look to people in costumes to change real issues for us. Um, we've got to do it ourselves. But in doing it, sometimes they don't work out perfectly. Uh, one of the series that I loved when I was much younger was the mid-80s run of The Question. Right. Denny O'Neill and Denny Cowan. And it was just so gray. Right. And about a guy, no powers. Uh, whether they meant to or, or not, they didn't uh, create the question, but they uh, made him indelible, was the idea that, you know, the whole story was a question. There was no answer. Um, there was no easy way to solve the issues in this city. And that's one of the things that I really wanted to bring to the American way. I believe the stories week to week, issue to issue, are amazingly satisfactory. But that idea that problem solving is bigger than any one of us, we have got to find a way to do it together. Yeah, and I think it's also, uh, it's a great medium to kind of tell these stories. Uh, just, you know, via the vehicle of superheroes, like you say, they really have a lot to say about our aspirations uh, in society, don't they? They absolutely do, and when one understands where the majority of these heroes originally came from and what was going on in the world and people who truly were marginalized feared for their lives feared for their identity um, and wanted to find a way to express themselves that's where they come from and we still see it today you know the the way that Wonder Woman the film was so embraced you know an audience that is just waiting for representation of them um, that's the exciting thing and I believe we're going to see it with Black Panther as well right um, so that's what is exciting about comic books uh, you know obviously the science fiction comic book fantasy audience has always been a little more forward than your typical audience. They've had a capacity to embrace, to imagine, uh, to want to see different worlds. And I believe they want to see that um, in the way that graphic novels, comic books, sci-fi are, are presented in the real world. But you talk about the opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, look, 10 years ago, the American way existed. It's taken me 10 years to be able to represent stories like that in the television space, in the film space. So uh, I've been able to do it. 
in the comic book space no. 10 years earlier, I don't think that was an accident. I think the audience no. that we presented the American Way to yeah. stood ready, ready much weather. earlier. That's a fantastic point, actually. Um, and and uh, I, I think that's why comics right now, you know, they're saying it's peak TV, obviously, yeah. you're, you're heavily involved in that, but really is peak comics. And I think they're, yeah. I, I would agree with you, I think they're leading the way in a lot of these. And it's, I mean, it should, does it surprise you to see so much television based on comics properties here well, I, I wish that they were doing this when I was a younger man I think they did attempt it and they just didn't you know the execution or the ability to execute wasn't there I'm not surprised and I'm very more enthused by the way right when it seems like okay too many comic books too many comic book stories whether it's Ant-Man or Deadpool or Wonder Woman or Black Panther, you know, the, I, I think the industry is finding ways of not just self-replicating. It's not just the umpteenth version of Superman. Always going to be Superman, always going to be Batman, but finding new ways to bring in stories that are based on graphic novels, but saying there's more than just your typical costumed hero, um, whether it's Preacher, you know, things like that. Um, American Gods, which is you know, slightly... You know, more, I think, a novel than a straight comic book. But you know that that it continues to be mined. I think is only beneficial to the business because if you do the same thing over and over again, people are going to get tired of it. Shake it up a little bit, people can go, oh, well, that's interesting. Let me check that out. I think that's great. Right. Now, are you uh, are you a big science fiction fan? Uh... I'm, I'm a fan. I'm definitely a fan. Grew up reading comic books. Still love um, anything with a spaceship in it. I cannot get enough spaceships. Um, for me, that's just my thing. Is I, I, I love that idea of sitting in the captain's chair and saying, you know, we're, we're going to go that way. Uh, so yeah, I would I would say I'm a, a good science fiction fan. I certainly grew up reading Ray Bradbury and Isaac Asimov, Foundation books, Illustrated Man, things like that. There really is nothing like having the opportunity to put something together that you know is going to go into a comic book store and people on New Comic Day are going to rush there. Maybe for years, maybe not, but just to have that communal experience of collecting, you know, picking up, paging through. Is this interesting? Am right. I grabbed by the art? Am I grabbed by, oh, I know this writer? Am I grabbed by, you know, it's just, well, I'm going to go down the DC line and pick right. up everything that's right. new. It's, it, it, it is a rare opportunity. Every one of those stands is real estate. And to have the opportunity to have a piece of real estate um, in a shop across America is not lost on me. It's very special. Right. Um, thank you. John, thank you so much. Really thrilled to have this time to talk to you. And, Absolutely. Uh, happy Comic-Con. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll see if I survive it. Thank you. Uh, we have a, a terrific guest today. Uh, very quickly. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you'll know, uh, NBA Hall of Famer, six-time NBA champion, transitioned to a new career as an author, columnist um, for the Washington Post time. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Oh, happy to be here. Uh, look, this is great. Um, we, uh, we Obviously, we want to talk about your, your new graphic novel coming from Titan Comics, Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbooks. Uh, I think you've, you've got about nine books for adults and at least three, I think, for children in the past. Uh, more like 12 and 3, I think. Okay, okay. All right. We'll get the stats correctly. Well, uh, anyway, just to give people a sense of, you know, what you do these days. So, but now let's talk about uh, 
Mycroft Holmes and the Apocalypse Handbook. Uh, this is uh, I've had a chance to read it. It's 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 a lot of fun. Uh, kind of a combination of history uh, and literary uh, history. So well, maybe you can give us a little bit of information about your personal background as a comics fan. What what you read when you were when you were younger? Well, you know, I've read all the classic stuff that uh, you know for for young readers. You know, Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. Uh, uh, Ivanhoe, The Three Musketeers. Yeah. Count of Monte Cristo. You know, all of that, all of that great stuff. And Tarzan. You know, it just, uh, I, I went from one to another. The, the world of books was so, so fascinating for me. You know, I, I was always there at the, at the library checking something else out. And, you know, it became a lifetime habit. And, but you were also a comics fan, right? So, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, people sort of, uh, I mean, we're living in a different world now. I mean, the teachers often discouraged us from reading comics, even though we read them anyway. Yeah, I, I, they thought they were kind of lowbrow. But yeah. uh, it, it, being able to read something, that something you could read in less than half an hour, I mean, there's <laughs> an appeal to that to a kid. You know, Absolutely. That, that we, they, they never acknowledged that. But you also, just from your other reading, you obviously were drawn to adventure. Oh yeah, that that you know all, especially like the Three Musketeers, all the sword fights and all of that. That was wonderful stuff. Robin so, Hood, you know. So, so when you started reading comics, uh, I mean, obviously the American superhero comic uh, is one adventure after another. Yeah, and you know it. The, the difference between what I had read in books and, you know, the comic books opened up new worlds, you know, the, because it was the current times, you know, Superman and Batman were fighting crime and criminals that are here now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that uh, and plus the, the additional stuff that uh, looked at the future, you know, what it was going to be like, you know, when uh, people did get uh, superhuman powers. Sure. But you you mentioned Batman and Superman. Did you read Marvel? Yeah, yeah, I read Marvel. That that was later mm-hmm. uh, when, when they started, and uh, I, it was really funny. I, I had the pleasure uh, once. I sat down on a plane to fly from New York uh, to Los Angeles, and um, uh, it, I, I sat down uh, right next to the guy that started Marvel Comics. Oh. Well, are you talking about Stan Lee or one of the Stan, o- older guys? The very same, Stan Lee. Yeah, okay, great. So was sitting right next to me, and he you know, he started talking. I, I didn't know who he was. I'd never seen a picture of him. Ah, and then he you know, identified himself, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" You know, <laughs> it was wonderful. So, what were some of your favorites? Uh, did you did you have some favorites? I mean, Marvel. The, the early Marvels were very very different kinds of superhero comics. Yeah, they, they were. They they were, and the. They uh, depicted a, a, a different world, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Iron Man and Plastic Man. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and, and we're talking about 1960s Marvel, I, I, I assume, right yeah. now. Yeah, 60s. Yeah, with the Fantastic Four and Spider Man. Four, yeah. and then Spider Man finally. Mm-hmm. Um. No. Uh, so. You're writing comics. Uh, do you still read? Uh, have you read any of the more recent um, uh, graphic novels? Yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, back going into the 70s, I got into um, the uh, 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 heavy metal. 
Oh, okay. Yeah, the European comics. The European ones, and, and they were like really interesting. You know, they mm-hmm. there was one that depicted ancient Egypt and the you know the the ancient Egyptian gods as like like real people characters that are plotting things and doing things. It was, it was very mm-hmm. fascinating. You know, there was a, I wonder if it's, it sounds like you're talking about the Nicopole trilogy, this great yeah. book by Anki Bilal, French Bilal. cartoonist, right. and it's about the ancient Egyptian gods coming back in like this pyramid spaceship. I don't know right. if that's the one you're talking about, but it's a great that's book. <laughs> no, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and it was a heavy it, metal too. Yeah, they they interact with uh, people that are more into a, like a, a film noir uh, uh-huh. world that that has become planet Earth. You sure, know? it was uh, fa- fascinating. Yeah, uh, great. So, uh, any of the other anything uh, other kind of contemporary works that you uh, may have touched on? Uh, well, you know, I run across various things, you know, but the, you know, the comic books have become so much more daring, sophisticated, you know, now they, they're really the, the story, the, the, the backstory, mm-hmm. um, uh, it's, it's ethnic now, you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. looking at the, the whole country, you know, the, the ones that I first started, it's interesting to, that it's uh, becoming like more and more about the real world that we live in. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, I'm 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 about 65 years old. So I when I first started reading comics, you 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 almost couldn't find any black people or anybody in comics, you know, uh, at all. Right. It's a different world today. Uh look, uh uh Kareem, look, thank you so much for being on More to Come. Great talking with you. Good luck to you. You bet. Thanks a lot. Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's uh, weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. Um, my name is Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor at Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Um, we've got a treat tonight. Uh, we're speaking with Andrew Iden, who works on the staff of Representative John Lewis, but more importantly is uh, Representative Lewis's co-author for the New York Times best-selling graphic biography, March Book One, which not only tells the, the really the hero, his, her, heroic story of uh, Representative John Lewis's life and, and involvement um, with the civil rights movement, but really really tells the whole story of the civil rights movement through his life. And, but, uh, one of the things that um, uh, I'm really anxious to talk with Andrew about is the the role of uh, Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story, an historic comic book that really outlines not only that the historic Montgomery uh, bus boycott, uh, but actually the a comic book that lays out the principles of nonviolent civil civil disobedience that were the bedrock of the civil rights movement and have gone on really to change the whole world. Um, Andrew, thank you so much uh, for uh, for talking with us about this uh, historic comic book. Well, thank you for having me, Calvin. It's great to be with you. Great. So, um, look, why don't you, why don't we get right to it? Um, uh, this comic book was actually turned into be in- instrumental uh, in. Uh, Getting you to, to write uh, to, to work with uh, um, Representative Lewis to do his biography as a as a graphic novel. Um, so tell us a little bit about how you learned about it and how it this figures in the whole narrative. Well, I first heard about it in 2008 when I was working on the congressman's campaign, and it was coming to an end. And we started talking about what we were going to do after. 
And I said I was going to a comic convention, and everybody laughed and chuckled. And the congressman said, don't laugh. There was a comic book during the movement, and it was incredibly influential. And that was the first time I heard of Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. And so I started, you know, you just go and you Google it, right? And it's right. available mm-hmm. online. You can you can see, like, piece parts here and there where it's been scanned. And, and uh, you know, you can see it on the Digital Comics Museum and things like that. And, um, I, I mean, I was captivated by this, you know, that there, there was a comic book. And then I asked more about it, and it turns out it had helped inspire some of the earliest sit-ins. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I only sort of knew about it in that general framework, and, and it just seemed – you know, if if there was a comic book published in the fifties at a at a time, you know, just right after the comic book hearings had devastated the yeah. industry, when comics, in some sense, were almost radioactive to the public conscious, mm-hmm. um, wh- why couldn't we do that again today? Uh, especially at a time when the lessons of the civil rights movement are so important, and there's so many things that we could use to apply uh, to to situations we face today. Um, and so many people, it seems like, really don't remember those lessons. Um, no, I, I and couldn't. so, you know, I went on to, to look up and, and read more. And then I was in grad school also uh, at night. Um, and it, it was uh, an opportunity uh, to, to, to write your thesis about something that you were really passionate about. And there mm-hmm. was few things I could imagine that I wanted to know more about uh, than this comic book. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I was the first person ever to ask to write a thesis in a public policy course uh-huh. about the influence of comics, uh, hey. a particular comic. And um, you convinced your advisors to, that, that they should do this. Yeah. I mean it was – you know, I think one of the opportunities when you write a thesis is to, to tell a story that nobody's told before. Mm-hmm. And I was really sort of surprised that nobody had told this story. Um, and – it took, you know, I think there was a few awkward meetings at first and, and I, you know, I just wouldn't give up on the idea um, uh-huh. because the history of it is almost as interesting as the comic book existing in and of itself. It was really interesting to me once I got into it that some of the folks who are involved in the creation of this are folks we know today as major civil rights leaders and even Dr. King helped edit it. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. What is the Fellowship um, of Reconciliation? They are a pacifist organization based in Nyack, New York, that was incredibly influential on the early days of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of their uh, field secretaries was a guy named the Rev- was Reverend Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. um, who uh, students of the Montgomery bus boycotts will recognize as one of the uh, uh, folks who helped Dr. King really – um, use nonviolence and and uh, organize the bus boycotts. And mm-hmm. in fact, he was the first uh, white person to sit next to a black person, specifically Dr. King, mm-hmm. on the Montgomery uh, uh, public bus system. Because they were essentially the publisher of this comic book. Right. Well, it was the director of publications for them who was the one who sort of carried the ball. Oh, yeah. Um, who was a guy named Alfred, Alfred Hassler. Hassler. And there was another guy, Benton, was it Resnick? Resnick, exactly. Yeah. But mm-hmm. now he was actually a comic book guy. Uh-huh. He came from uh, a, organ- a, a company called Toby Press, mm-hmm. which was run by Elliot Kaplan, who was Al Cap's brother. Oh, 
Oh, this is right? okay. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Now we're getting so, interested because I'm um, very interested Toby in Press, how this was uh, made and who made it. Sorry, I'm very interested in how this comic book of it was made and who actually produced it. Well, this is sort of this was my fascination too, right? Like, there's no there's no signature in there. Nobody right. knows who the artist is. Uh, nobody really knew who the writer was. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it says produced by the Fellowship, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of it maybe it was because it would have been dangerous to have your name on it at mm-hmm. the time. Um, but what happened was. Uh, Put this in some historic context, right? So the sure. hearings happened and the anti-comic book fervor sort of hit a high water mark uh, about 54, 55, right? Um, Elliot Kaplan was actually the first chairman of the group that met uh, to deal with the response uh, to the backlash mm-hmm. um, that ultimately went on to uh, create the comics code. Mm-hmm. And it was because he was running a Toby Press, which produced like uh, romance and action-adventure mm-hmm. comics. Uh, that that in the course of the hearings were actually labeled as un, unsuitable for for youth, right? They were yes. the they were some of the bad comics. They got the the negative ratings and things like that, and that ultimately drove them out of business. Um, but in the exact same offices, right, mm-hmm. uh, that Toby Press existed, um, was working was a guy named Benton Resnick, mm-hmm. uh, who had been the general manager of Toby Press. Uh-huh. And you can look in the indicia of a lot of the old Toby comics and you can see his name right there. And this is how we figured out sort of this connection. Um, it was actually Eddie Campbell who helped me like figure this out a mm-hmm. little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he's, oh, you know, really? he's a top shelf creator and, and we <laughs> yeah, were sure. at the booth well, that's with, a pretty, uh, in that's San a pretty Diego Im- in 2012. And I, I started talking to him about it and he was like, Oh, I can help. That's a pretty impressive research assistant. Right, isn't that amazing? <laughs> the like, the great Eddie nice Campbell, guy. author of you know uh, really from Hell kind. and other great and works. So, so anyway, um, Resnick, once Toby shut down, right? Mm-hmm. They they apparently reopened as something called Graphic Information Services, and if you look on the letterhead of the original letters from Resnick to Alfred Hassler at the Fellowship, it has the exact same address. Mm-hmm. That's listed in the <laughs> indicia of Toby Press Comics. Uh-huh. So it's basically like they were operating out of the same facility, doing the same sort of things, mm-hmm. but rather than produce the comics that were that were getting you know so much negative attention, they were taking on four higher uh, assignments mm-hmm. from nonprofits. I see. Um, Al Cap himself had done some of these. Uh, there's a Natural Disasters comic out there that you can find, mm-hmm. um, but but those are very much signed by Al Cap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and somewhere in the midst of all this, um, Al Cap had sort of come to be the label that they associated with who produced this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't Al Cap himself. It was sort of uh, almost a marketing device in some sense because he was so well known. I see. Now, I, my, my understanding was that it was from his studio, but it, it, is that even accurate? I, I, you know, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, the letters that we've uncovered – directly point to graphic information services. I see. And I think from what we've been able to piece together, it was an organization called Fund for the Republic, which was partially funded by the Ford Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it was a nonprofit set up to fund uh, social justice activities in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And um, somehow, we haven't been able to piece all of this together, but the Fund for the Republic connected Hassler and the Fellowship mm-hmm. uh, together. And the mm-hmm. fund gave the Fellowship a $5,000 grant to 
create and print this comic. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the only hard evidence we have is letters between Hassler and Resnick going over the story treatment. Mm-hmm. And it seems that they worked on it together um, and, and came up – they started working on it in late 56. Mm-hmm. Um, so relatively soon after, the, the bus boycotts were over. I mean this was like almost mm-hmm. immediately they started working on this. Um, and so uh, Resnick, you know, who was actually listed in David Haydu's uh, oh, right. Tencent, Tencent Plague mm-hmm. as one of those who never worked in the comics industry mm-hmm. again. Yeah. So it was fun to find that like these guys – we're in fact still working in comics, albeit a slightly a different, different uh, kind type of, of comic. Now, was this real? Was this idea to do a essentially a, a social justice comic book? Was this embraced by um, everyone in the civil rights movement at the time, or the people that were close in? Did they all think that this was a good idea? Well, that's what's so amazing about this. We found letters from A. Philip Randolph, Martin Luther King. Um, and, and and perhaps most notably, Will Campbell, who, if you read March, is actually a character in there because he was working actively in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Um, they were all encouraging him to do this because right. they thought it was so important to find a way to reach young people and to mm-hmm. teach them about nonviolence. In fact, uh, Will Campbell was at the meeting in which SCLC was founded. Uh-huh. And the next day, wrote a letter to Hassler saying, don't tell anybody, but we've just created this organization. And I think this organization will be very supportive of the comic book and can utilize it in their own work. And then, of course, SCLC and Dr. King went on to actually write an endorsement that went into some of the comic books and some of the advertising materials uh, when they were soliciting it to the various peace groups. Awesome. So how much hands – so how hands-on – well, obviously they endorsed it. How hands-on was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King in the actual production of the book? Dr. King actually read an advanced copy of the script before it went into final production and then sent a letter to Hassler uh, apologizing for taking so long because it, it, he was delayed <laughs> by the birth of his first son, um, <laughs> offering his own edits. Saying, oh, cool. you know, I think this you may need to change this character. It was actually such and such who said this um, and and saying, you know, he was really proud of what they did uh, and that, that he really he really uh, appreciated. It. He thought they did a good job. I love it. Martin Luther King comics editor. Right. <laughs> I'm loving this. So. um Okay, great. So uh, they're all working on this. Uh, it's they've embraced the notion of a comic book. Uh um, Martin Luther King is 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 editing it. They've gotten the grant to produce it. Um, you know, what was? Do you have an idea what kind of print run went out and how did they distribute it? Well, you know, at a time that, uh, it was in the middle of an anti-comics hysteria. Copy print run. Oh, I'm sorry. What was that? It was two hundred and fifty thousand copies. Two hundred and fifty thousand copies. Right by today's standards, oh. I mean that's a huge print run. Yeah. Um, but you know, it was. It was to be distributed not just here in the United States, but all around the world. They solicited it in, you know, Peace News and and various uh, Christian publications around the mm-hmm. uh, uh, Europe, and and um, eventually it, it landed in South Africa and um, later in Latin America. But um, w- one of the things that was cool about this process when they did it is that. Um, you found that 
the people who were responding to it were not what they expected, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the first the first round of mailings they did, they accidentally sent to a group of white ministers who, <laughs> who, who like, wrote back, like, these nasty letters, like, we don't want your comic book, like, get this out of here. It's a sort um, of negative but, focus but Then they group. sent it yeah. to uh, uh, some more southern and, like, African-American churches and schools and things like that. Um, and they really embraced it, but it wasn't approved by the comics code. So they couldn't distribute it through traditional means. Uh-huh. And so what happened was you had a group of ministers that we now know as quite famous individuals from the movement who took the comic book on something that they called a reconciliation tour, um, where they traveled all around the South. I think they did eight States in like four or five, maybe six months. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would give these nonviolent workshops and we're talking about Glenn Smiley, mm-hmm. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, yes, well. um, and Jim Lawson, who sure. mm-hmm. you know later went on to to train the the uh, Nashville student movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so right away they were getting a response to this. Jim Lawson actually told me a story where he went out to the Midwest in early 1958 mm-hmm. uh, and used the comic book in uh, some nonviolent workshops that directly motivated the students to go and have some of the earliest sit-ins. Um, now, of course, they didn't get the same media attention that others did later, mm-hmm. um, but it was almost as if as soon as they had this comic book, you could see the impact on young people mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and having it as something that they could hold in their hands and take with them later um, to really understand not just uh, sort of the, the I guess, uh, you see these things in sort of the abstract, but when you put it in their, their hands and you show them a story sure. of how it worked, followed by like a descriptive lesson plan, um, it really sunk in and it mm-hmm. became something that motivated them. So was it primarily word of mouth or did the, did the comic book get, get media uh, at the time? It didn't get so much like mainstream media. Yeah. It was uh, – Even, even media – smattering Even of, media attacking it. It was like Christian publications, peace publications, uh-huh. um, sort of that underground network of uh, activists that were emerging from the early days of the civil rights movement. That was primarily where they received uh, press. But beyond that, you know, it was word of mouth. It was mailings. It was sort of the most uh, grassroots distribution method. Um, far more, I mean, it almost in some weird sense, it was like, the, the predecessor to Kickstarter, you know, I yeah. mean, like this was them just doing like mailings out to people saying, hey, we need you to buy a lot so we can so we can make sure. this print run. And they did. Uh, really amazing. Um, and and but still the the name of the artist and really who wrote it, it's still it, we, we've never been able to nail that down. Well, so the artist is, you know, there's some theories, uh-huh. um, I think. There's sort of the idea that it is in the style of Dan Barry. Uh-huh. Yes. I would I, love I, to have a conversation with his brother, Cy, who mm-hmm. I'm, from what I've been told, is still alive, but mm-hmm. I haven't been able to track him down um, because they were working together at that time. Interesting, because it's a really beautifully illustrated comic. Oh, it's beautiful. It's really well done. And, and if you look, there's actually a first draft of the cover. Uh, that, that's been found that's a little bit different than the cover that, that you see on the finished version. Uh-huh. Um, and it's funny because it has the story of how that cover changed is very similar to how they changed the Martin Luther King Memorial. Um, oh, re- oh, right. Oh, really? Yeah. The first was cover there a they misquote put together on the cover? <laughs> staring directly at you, right? Uh-huh. 
Um, and it was a little bit more, uh, uh, I don't want to say confrontational, mm. but it was definitely more direct. I see. Um, and, and it's, it's, they had almost the same criticism of the original sculpt of the, uh, Dr. King Memorial, uh, when that, when that was proposed. And it seems like people are like a little bit afraid to look Dr. <laughs> King in the eye. You know? So, uh, really interesting. <laughs> Andrew, I, this is a perfect place for us to end. Thank you so much. Thank you.